Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast a show for people around the globe who are thinking and feeling deeply about climate change, the personal side of climate change. And, you know, in this show, we, we, we focus on emotions, what you're feeling in your body and your feelings, the words that you use. Um, and you can find us at climatechangeandhappiness.com and see our Patreon. And today we have a special guest. Hi, my name is Scott Ordway. I'm a composer and multimedia artist uh, based in Philadelphia and originally from Northern California. I'm so happy to be here. And we're really, we're really glad to have uh, Scott. And um, we're going to be talking a bit. We're assuming this episode is going to be coming out early in the year. And this is a beautiful episode to begin our podcast season. Pana, do you want to get us going in our dialogue? Definitely. So we are going to talk a lot about music today, also emotions. And as almost every person on the planet knows, there's very strong connection between music and emotions. And uh, some time ago with Thomas, we did a couple of music themed episodes for our podcast. Uh, Scott, as mentioned, has been working with music in many ways for for a long long time and some of his work very explicitly touches on the emotional side of climate change and overall the changes in the world around us uh, but scott uh, could you start by telling a bit about your background so where, where do you come from and what's up for for you Sure. So I'm, a, as I mentioned, a composer and multimedia artist. In addition to writing works for orchestra, voices, chamber ensembles, I also work with photography and video um, as a way to explore themes that are important to me. I was born and raised in Northern California um, in and around the, the coastal redwood forests. And the landscape of uh, coastal Northern California was a huge part of my upbringing and remains um, an important source of inspiration for me today. And it's also an area which is seeing um, tremendous changes in the last decade as a result of climate change and has been a, a point of inspiration for, for a lot of my recent work. Mm. Yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing. And uh, I had the privilege of uh, l listening to one of your recent works called The End of Rain, which explicitly uh, deals with the impacts of wildfires and droughts. Uh, to to California, both the people and the modern human human world. And uh, would you like to say something about that that work and how how did you en end up working with that? Sure. So as as your listeners may know, in 2020, uh, Northern California suffered uh, some of the most intense wildfires in in recent history, and these came uh, on the heels of several previous years that were 
also among the worst wildfire seasons in living memory. In late summer 2020, one of these wildfires burned quite near to my childhood home in Santa Cruz, California. And I was experiencing this at the time from the other side of the country in my home uh, now in Philadelphia. And as I watched these fire maps uh, intently, day and night, getting closer and closer to the places that I knew and loved so well, and ultimately burning many of them, I knew that I wanted to respond um, in, my own, in my own work. At the same time, I knew that even though this was, this was my home and a place that I knew and cared about deeply, that my own personal experience was somehow insufficient to capture the intensity of this feeling, because as I said, I experienced it from across the country. And so I designed a process through which I gathered firsthand uh, testimony from about 225 Californians who had experienced these events directly. All in all, I gathered about 80,000 words of firsthand stories of fire and drought in Northern California. And working from this large data set, I extracted something that I think of as a, a nonfiction poem, where each line of the poem came directly from one, uh, one of these responses. And so working almost like a journalist, speaking to one person after the next, asking for introductions, uh, traveling all around the state, I gradually assembled this long poem, which I could set to music. I was fortunate enough to have a, co a commission for the work from the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music in Santa Cruz, California, which is one of the oldest and most celebrated festivals of contemporary orchestral music in the United States. And through that festival, I was able to work with the Grammy-winning vocal ensemble Roomful of Teeth, who would sing this text as soloists. So with this incredible commission in place, I set out around California to speak with people who had experienced this directly, and also to make video and photography uh, to do to do documentary video and photography that would illustrate the themes that I heard in the texts. So the final work involves projected documentary video, crowdsourced text sung by Roomful of Teeth, and a large orchestra. Mm. At the same time, I published a volume of uh, landscape photography so the audiences could experience the poetry as well as the photography uh, in in that way as well. Mm. It's really beautiful. Uh, you can see some images of the book at Scott's website, uh, scottordway.com, and I've been just checking them out. And so this was a happening. This is a this is a creation in time. This performance must have been quite powerful. Um, Scott, did you did you hear back from people? I imagine that people, some of the people who attended the performance, were also touched by the fire. What was it like for you, for your family, for people to, to have this? Because you created a ceremony. You, you created something that doesn't happen really in the world regarding these disasters as a kind of a ritual and a ceremony to kind of bring them together and then extract some meaning and purpose from them, I think. Um, but what did, how did people react? Well, this was something that I was really nervous about. Uh, mm. Anytime you create a work that purports to speak on behalf of anyone other than yourself, you're... Um, you're taking quite a risk that you will somehow misrepresent someone or that you will have gotten the tone wrong or gotten the spirit wrong. And I thought very deeply as I was gathering these texts and also as I was making the selections of which lines to include in the final, in the final work, I thought very deeply about what I heard from people and 
and really did my best to make this piece a conduit for other people's point of view rather than simply a platform to share my own. The premiere, which took place in July of this year, or July 2022, I should say, in Santa Cruz, California, was for me one of the highlights of my life as an artist. Mm. Not only because it was a major event in my home region, but also because the op- I had the opportunity to speak with so many people who had either experienced these events directly or who had themselves contributed to the text. And what I heard from people was that there was something quite unusual and striking about hearing their words filtered through this process and included in a symphonic composition and then sung by these world-renowned singers. And the feedback that I heard was was quite positive. Um, mm-hmm. People seemed, the people that I spoke with felt that the work uh, adequately summed up their their experience of these events or or crystallized their feelings in a way which which perhaps hadn't hadn't before i'm sure there will have been others that felt that was less the case and maybe mm-hmm. didn't stop by to tell me afterward but mm-hmm. yeah but in either case the dialogue with the audience was unlike anything i've ever experienced after a premiere how did your family fare in the this is a czu fire right so a big fire complex uh how did your family fare yourselves my family while they were evacuated um and my my hometown was was largely evacuated my family was was fortunately spared mm-hmm. for them the the traumatic part i think came in in losing portions of natural parks which we've known and loved for so many years um buildings and structures which we considered part of the permanent landscape of um of the region and also losing the peace of mind and thinking that they were somehow immune from this mm-hmm. because this this fire burned in regions that really have not experienced fire like this mm-hmm. in in generations we're not talking about remote wilderness here this is very very close to some very densely populated urban areas mm-hmm. so it was quite unsettling for a lot of people that don't that didn't previously envision themselves as living in a fire zone. Yeah, thanks for sharing sharing all. There's a ton of directions to go. Yeah. Yeah. But Kanu, take us away here. I've got some things to bring up here in a moment. Yeah. Yeah, there's sev- several things that I really appreciate in the method uh, and in the end product uh, of, of the end of rain. One being that you were willing to really listen to people's experiences. The second being that you were interested in the wide variety of people's reactions and experiences and trying to produce a sort of collage or mosaic or whatever word one could, could use use here. I think that's very, very valuable and sort of appreciating and recognizing that people will react differently. Uh, as a scholar of ecological emotions, there's of course a very wide variety of things uh, that have come up in other studies which are now manifested in the lines of the end of the rain or in the in the Im- imagery in, in a slightly different different format. So I think it's very uh, v- very fruitful also for researchers to take a look at very many kinds of impacts that these kinds of events have, and you explicitly describe in the text also the impacts on people's beliefs and assumptions 
and that's something I think that would need even more disca discussion like you say that it may change people's view uh, about the world and their uh, image about sense of safety for example which are of course very basic psychological needs also as Thomas very well knows as a therapist, therapist also but uh, could you tell a bit more about the sort of emotional journey that you had to go through in, in making this so so how was that process or, or journey for yourself? Well, one of the fundamental questions that motivated this work was was a hypothesis that we are looking at the forest in a different way than we have in recent generations, um, and that specifically forests are bringing up a different set of emotions than they have uh, in recent times. And my understanding is that for much of the history of humanity, when people looked out from the cultivated parts of the world toward the wild parts of the world, they did so with fear and trembling and with trepidation. And that when people looked toward the forest, they saw a place of danger and uncertainty and darkness, as opposed to the the parts which were cultivated and, and understood. And only in the last several hundred years did the forest become a place where we thought of peace and safety and tranquility and restoration and rejuvenation. And these only in recent years or recent generations had we begun to think of the wild parts of the world as a place of peace and safety. Mm -hmm. And my hypothesis is that as we're entering this age of perpetual fire, we're returning to a, a much older way of looking at the forest where we see it as a, as a potential source of danger as much as a potential source of peace and tranquility. Mm -hmm. And my own journey has been, has been similar. Um, particularly when I'm in, in California and other parts of the, the Western US, when I see a dry forest, I'm not just thinking of how peaceful it would be or how uh, rejuvenating or inspiring it would be to spend time in a forest, but I'm also thinking of the threat that it poses um, mm -hmm. and thinking about the relationship between the built environment and the uh, the wilderness. So my own way of looking at the forest has become a lot more complicated than it was um, even a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And I I found in speaking with people for this project that that, that feeling was widely shared. Mm -hmm. The forest is not so simple as it was a generation ago. Yeah. Yeah. And the listeners can, the listeners can take this in. Uh, there's li people listening, obviously, that have personally experienced worry about forest fires or impacts, uh, certainly in the Pacific Northwest, everyone can identify with this, this, this new sort of trepidation about dry forest and dry underbrush and crinkling, crinkling leaves and baking sun and all this kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's good to zoom out. Just remind, remind us that you know Scott's work is is illustrating climate psychology, right? We have. The idea that there's different impacts from climate change, disaster impacts and societal impacts and the emotional weight. And for a lot of people, you know, they've only just dealt with the emotional weight, watching climate as a distant, distant thing, something that's happening to other people far away. But of course, these, these, these uh, impacts are all coming together in, in a singularity uh, at different places in different times. And if you're in that place, then suddenly you're feeling the emotional weight and actually the disaster and the social upheaval and the, and the rebuilding. And so it is a, a you know, a loss of innocence for those, those regions, certainly in the Northwest, it's a loss of innocence. Um, and then it's a loss of it's in its deep anxiety, eco anxiety. So that worry about the, 
the potential um, fire and the lo no longer trusting the heat and the sun. That's that's a great example of the subtle kind of pervasive, you know, eco anxiety that's lingering in the back of our minds, um, which I think is so why your piece is so helpful because you know there's three ways we have meaning in our life that we you know we feel like our life is significant we have a purpose you know things make sense and i think after that disaster people's meaning they feel insignificant they don't know what's going on they don't have a sense of purpose and so i think your 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 work at least for yourself um restored some of that meaning i think i obviously why you probably did it uh but i think it was a you know community meaning making ritual how, how, how do you what do you think about that you know, as I, as I started out the work, I was imagining that I was going to be writing something uh, considerably more somber than, mm -hmm. than I did. And I was surprised and inspired as I traveled around uh, speaking with, with people. I was surprised at the extent to which these events had a galvanizing effect on people and on communities. I spoke with many many people who told me that their communities were stronger after the fire than they had been before the fire that in the process of confronting these catastrophic events they forged connections with their neighbors that hadn't been there before that they found strength in their community that they hadn't been aware of previously and that they came out of these events with a determination to to be stronger as a as a community as a group as a collection of people and there were some people that i spoke with in particular in one community that had suffered some of the most catastrophic fire damage in the history of the united states and these individuals told me with with great determination that i was under no circumstances to write a sad and pitying mm -hmm. piece for them <laughs> mm -hmm. that i was under no circumstances to make this a work about uh, defeat or tragedy, but that instead uh, they wanted me to know that they were rebuilding, that the forest was coming alive again, that their community was coming alive again. And that that spirit really surprised me. I wasn't expecting to find that in quite the way that I did, but I tried to honor that in the work. Um, and I ended up ending the piece with two lines which are sung um, one after the other in an alternating fashion, which to me were both equally true. The first of those lines being, we must change now. Mm -hmm. And the second being, things will grow back. Mm -hmm. And as I was trying to determine the ultimate emotional point of this piece or which of the conflicting emotions I wanted to focus on or to highlight, I just couldn't I couldn't decide between those two things that the need for change is undeniable. And it's also undeniable that things will grow back. The forest regenerates, communities regenerate, things do move forward. Um, and this tension and this ambiguity is, is what I've tried to explore in this, in this piece. That's very striking. Yeah. Striking both in the in the piece and how you describe it now. And some folks apply dialectical thinking into climate psychology and the times where we are living, where the idea is that sort of two opposites may be true uh, at the same time. 
you know, uh, in relation to action, individuals have to do stuff, but also there's a strong need for structural change. So this both exists, it's, it's not either, either or. There's very good reasons for despair and there's um, grounds for hope also. So there's the co dialectical coexistence of, of many things which are sometimes considered binaries. And I, I think that your work speaks to this true amb ambiguity and dialectical character of the times in in which we are living yeah yeah and one of the things that i've heard with the therapists that i've worked with and uh people is this people do lose their can they lose their ability to relax in nature in the natural world or when they go into to do some restorative activity then they feel overcome with grief and the, this knowledge you know the penalties of a ecological education living in a world of wounds kind of thing um and so that that my standard answer to that is that's true but it's not a barrier it's a doorway it's a doorway into a, a higher way of being it's a it's a more mature understanding of the world um we don't have that innocence we we lose that childhood innocence in the in the course of uh, particularly the ph photographic and and video components of the work i spent many many dozens of hours uh walking and hiking in quite remote regions of california and I began this process in December 2020, which was just a couple months after these fires. And I continued this process through June of 2022, uh, just before the premiere. So it was about an 18-month series of, of trips. And what was so moving to me was that at the beginning of creating this piece, I was absolutely shocked and horrified and just, just uh, devastated by the sight of seeing these forests in the condition that they were in. After these first trips, as I began speaking with more ecologists and uh, people that work with the Park Service and scientists, I learned, uh, I learned in much greater detail about the fact that fire is a natural part of the life cycle of forests, and particularly these coastal redwood forests. It is a healthy and necessary part of the forest ecosystem, and that other than its impact on human communities, fire was a, was a neutral phenomenon from an ecological standpoint. Um, it was not necessarily sad from the point of view of the trees. Mm -hmm. And as I started spending more and more time in these forests, not only did I become accustomed to the sight of burned out trees, you know, it became a little bit less shocking to me after a while, but also in the course of those 18 months, I started to see new growth. By the end of that uh, period of, uh, of time, groves that had been completely devastated were sending up new shoots, were, there, there was just green exploding everywhere by that spring of 2022. And so for me, this sustained contact with these ecosystems made it impossible for me not to see that, that truth that things will grow back. They are growing back. They've already started in the time it took me to write this piece. The forest has begun that process of rejuvenation. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is reconsider the relationship between where and how people live and uh, the wilderness. That's very well said. That's very well said, I think. Yeah. We need sustained contact and, and a sense of time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And maybe we can steer the conversation toward the uh, other pieces that we want to talk about today as well. Uh, the Outer Edge and the Clearing. You want to 
get us in that direction, Panu? Yeah, there's the, this framework of post-traumatic growth. That's actually a title of one of the last texts I did in Finnish for this National Eco-Anxiety Project that had also guests visiting our podcast. So post-traumatic growth refers to the fact that often after a major crisis, there's both damage and growth. So in my mind, that very strongly resonates with the vivid imagery that you are talking about, Scott, here. And music is, of course, something which can help in many ways in... Uh, producing all kinds of kinds of growth and um, many works of yours also other than the end of rain deal uh, in one way or another with this relationship between humans and the modern modern human human world so uh, would you like to say say a bit about some some of your other other works which come close to the topic at hand yeah i'd be happy to so So whereas The End of Rain is very much a documentary work and is kind of a, a piece of musical nonfiction, if if you will, most of my other work is 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 concerned with imagined worlds or more fictional representations of these ideas. My most recent uh, recording, which is which is uh, available on Spotify and Apple Music and everywhere else the music is found, is a, an opera called The Outer Edge of Youth. And in this piece, I imagine a relationship between two young boys who are uncommonly quiet and sensitive and find uh, a friendship with one another that's rooted in their shared love for the beauty of the natural world and the landscape around them. This piece is set in an imagined forest that uh, for me is very similar to the coastal redwoods of Northern California. And these boys find one day in the forest that they're able to understand the words of the birds singing in the trees. And in the course of the piece, the boys have an extended dialogue with the birds on the subjects which are the most urgent to them at the end of their youth and the beginning of their adolescence. And so they speak with the birds about um, the nature of love and human relationships, about the nature of compassion, the relationship between humans and animals, about the nature of beauty and the possibility of uh, of the divine and also the difficulty of of having a spiritual life in a in a broad uh, secular world that we live in um, and all of these questions are are left unresolved but it's a mm. it's a slow and and contemplative work that really just dramatizes the the world that's gone on in, in my head for so much of my life which is how to reconcile the intensity of human emotion with with an appreciation of landscape, with inspiration in the natural world, and with a society which quite often makes it very difficult to to, to live and be in touch with these things, which doesn't privilege this kind of this kind of slow appreciation of beauty. Mm-hmm. So that that work is on uh, is streaming everywhere, and maybe we can listen to a short excerpt from it now. That would be excellent. So here's an example.
Yes. No, this is this is a this is a beautiful I love our podcast because it's it, it does always kind of work out. I've been struggling with helping people make sense of their connection disconnection with nature this 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 both and kind of situation the fear the fear that's now coming into people and then for me it's coming back to this idea that it's an end of innocence when we're children we we like like Pana says we have a blessed blessed unknowing we have a beautiful natural innocence of, of nature but as adults we we let that go we can go back to it as an adult though and think about it and learn from it still but it's not the same and you know we are adults and we do have this knowledge so i i feel like our conversation has described that a little bit because i think scott you're, you've been able to kind of as an adult kind of go back to that 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 fraught you know fruitful time and then I, the, the idea of having the birds you know be the be the advisors is really beautiful um and it capture some of that magic of childhood that we can we can evoke in art mm-hmm. yeah the french Philosopher Paul Ricoeur, who lived in the States for quite some time, had this idea of second naivete. So, you know, the first naivism in a good sense is when you are a small kid, but then for some issues, the human task would be to cultivate an ability for a sort of second naivete. So he was linking this with several issues, but that's something that comes to my mind when listening to this. And perhaps that could be applied for for connections with the modern human world also. There's definitely good reasons for that, as I hear you both, Thomas and Scott, Scott say. And it's been a very fascinating conversation. I've greatly enjoyed it. And warm thanks, Scott, that you could join us. We have to wrap up relatively soon, but... What's on your on your minds, Thomas and Scott, as we start wrapping things things up? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the 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 idea of naivete. We we recently spoke to poet Kim Stafford, and he spoke quite forthrightly about claiming that that naivete in his poetry, and how he he gives voice to the raindrops and various things like that. So that is there is almost almost kind of a if it's done well, it's a very radical and very mature. Uh, act a very a very fruitful kind of um, generative act if it's done well um, and so just res- looking back to the episode I refer uh, listeners back to the episode with with Kim as well in this regard uh, but Scott yeah where where do, where does your creative life lead you these days and how does it feel we don't need to open up a long chapter here but like I know you're in Philadelphia now which is a very different different place than uh, Santa Cruz or the California Redwoods. So wh- wh- what's your creative life in leading you even even today and this week? This project is, has really opened a lot of um, a lot of creative possibilities for me and, and going forward, I'm looking to new projects that similarly use this process of uh, kind of journalistic and documentary, text gathering to tell stories that are grounded in the experiences of of people in the contemporary world. And I'm also um, designing projects that that continue to use photography and video as as ways to enrich and kind of augment the the texts and the music that I'm creating. So I'm really interested in this idea of multimedia, multimedia work and and creating works that are able to speak directly to the public about issues that people care about 
and to do so using using music, which which connects with those deepest and hardest to access places of who we are as people. It's so nice that we're having uh, arts in our in our in our podcast here. I've taken. I'm I'm really gaining from it. In our show notes, we'll have links to Scott's works um, and some neat interviews with Scott, and also some other examples of music that that are out there for people in the know. They they they, they know their composers have been doing climate related work for some time but for some for some others you know we don't we're not we're not clued in so there's some some links to follow this for ourselves and um i think we'll be scott i'm going to be delving into your work a little more now that i have the personal story it makes it so much more special to think about this some pleasure speaking with you both panu take care of yourself have a good evening and you all take care listeners you can find us at uh climatechangeandhappiness.com and see our past episodes. You can also find us on Patreon and you all be well. Take care. Take care. Thank you. The Climate Change and Happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort. Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.